Well, it's a pleasure to be here to honor, uh, to honor Mary Douglas, who I met uh, several times, and uh, she read uh, a bit of the book from which I'm, well, which will be the foundation of what I'm talking about tonight. Her first comment was that she didn't like it very much, but then she said she grew more accustomed to it. At any rate, let me begin. The concept of solidarity has been largely absent from modern social theories of modernity. This is strange because solidarity remains a central dimension of social order and social conflict inside modern societies themselves. One way to understand how this has happened and how the theoretical situation might be corrected is to examine the widely shared notion that modern societies are in fact characterized by a sharp separation among spheres. I've been engaged recently in an empirical, theoretical project that addresses this problem. It's about when and how broader social morality inserts itself into sphere-specific interests and elite conflicts. I call this the societalization of social problems. And in this lecture, I'm going to make, let's say, an interim report on this phenomenon. Now, the image of autonomous social and cultural spheres is basic to every macro-sociological theory of modernity. Weber emphasized the fragmentation of spheres in modern society. Durkheim talked about the division of social labor. Parsons took from Spencer the idea of differentiation of spheres. Luhmann developed something he called autopoiesis, which emphasized the autonomy of spheres. And Marx and Pierre Bourdieu also emphasized autonomous social spheres as the synchronon of modernity. What these thinkers do not share, of course, is an understanding of what the relationship between these separate spheres sorry, might be. For some, like Weber and Luhmann and the Durkheim of anime and egoism, there is virtually no relationship among spheres. Separation and independence is the whole point of their thinking about modernity. For other master theorists, such as Parsons and Durkheim of the Division of Labor Books 1 and 2, there is interpenetration and reciprocity among uh, the separated spheres. For the critical tradition of Marx and Bourdieu, the relationship between sar- sharply separated spheres is typically one of verticality and domination. For theorists who envision either no relationship between spheres or relations of vertical domination, modernity contains no society in the moral sense. There's simply no room. And I think this is actually the main thrust of modern theorizing, that as society becomes more modern, spheres become specialized, and the broader moral rubric, society, as such, disappears. Yet there is an important, if minor, countercurrent. In the Parsonian, and again to some degree Durkheimian traditions, holistic social morality remains central to a modern society. 
The problem with such so-called functionalist approaches, however, is that social morality is never really not there. For Parsons, for example, the differentiation of spheres doesn't really cause any sort of problem. He is confident that every subsystem contains values and norms that, while functionally specialized, remain specifications of a broader value uh, societal value system. So modernity creates value generalization that stretches like an umbrella over separate spheres. It's much the same for Durkheim in Division of Labor Books 1 and 2. The non-contractual elements of contract and the culture of individualism or the cult of the individual provide moral regulation among and over uh, the otherwise separated and specialized spheres. The theory of societalization that I'm trying to develop does build on certain aspects then of uh, Durkheim and Parsons' functionalism, but the model pays a lot of attention as well to what's called the conflict tradition, to theories that highlight the force fields created by independent social spheres and the institutional and elite interests that such separation creates. I began, in fact, from the idea that there is an uneven and conflicting relation between spheres, that the relations are tense, that their institutions and their elites are always fighting one another for control, and that this is the normal situation in modern societies. Nonetheless, there are certain occasions, I believe, when the loud and commanding voice of society, the voice of widely shared and imperative morality, does come to the fore. Even on such occasions, however, we do not have social integration in the functionalist sense. What we have, I want to suggest, is the newly asserted dominance, the voice and the interest of another sphere, the civil sphere, which has its own discourse institutions and carrier groups. In this revisionist sense, the war between the spheres that Fervedo characterizes modernity actually continues, even when we have the language and force of Durkheim's society entering the fray. The cultural discourse and institutional mandates of the civil sphere stipulate idealized relations of solidarity, altruism, and autonomy. The civil sphere, as I see it, is an imagined community where everybody is treated as a human being rather than as part of a material field or a role in a status hierarchy. The discursive and organizational logics of such a civil sphere conflicts starkly with those of other spheres. But it's not simply a situation of different strokes for different folks. Certainly a plural, pluralistic and differentiated society has different equally justifiable spheres of justice in Michael Walter's sense, or orders of worth in Boltonsky and Tevinos. But to the degree that a society is democratic, I would argue, to that degree, the civil sphere may trump others. The civil sphere can enter into conflict with the spheres of money, 
power, religion, state, media, and ethnicity, critique and attack them and demand their reconstruction. I call such a process civil repair. I would argue that the sociology of civil repair is central to the empirical understanding of contemporary society and to the possibility of relating a sociology of modernity to more philosophical discussions about justice and the good society. For example, Walls. The project I'm reporting on today can be seen as an effort then to develop further a sociology of civil repair. In an earlier work, The Civil Sphere, published almost 10 years ago, I theorized civil repair in terms of the long durée as sweeping processes that produce fundamental social change, such as class incorporation, feminism, and multiculturalism. In the current project, I focus on repair processes that are more spiky, short-term, and bi-directional, and iterative cycles rather than stepwise reforms. What I have in mind is something like Albert Hirschman's shifting involvements, where phases of public involvement are ineluctably interrupted by periods of private withdrawal, though I'm not working with the dichotomy private-public. My goal is to model ongoing, open-ended, continuously shifting relationships among modern social spheres, what I call boundary relations. I believe that theoretical interest and knowledge about such boundary relations are, in fact, strangely lacking in contemporary macro-sociology. I began with the old functionalist idea of institutional strains, especially prominent in the work of people like Merton and Smelser. This refers to organizational malfunctionings and breakdowns and their experiential and systemic consequences. I want to stress that such strains are legion, that they continuously roil every sphere of the social system, but they do not necessarily cause societal-wide reactions. Indeed, most of the time, strains, no matter how large and roiling, are handled intra-institutionally. They are dealt with inside of the institution that generated them. When strains are handled intra-institutionally, society is in the condition of what I call the steady state. Steady state implies neither the absence of social strain nor the existence of cultural consensus. What it refers to, rather, is a condition in which strains and conflicts have not spilled outside their sphere of origin into society at large. What do I mean exactly by a strain being handled intra-institutionally? First, that strain is filtered through the culture of that sphere, handled in terms of that particular institutional logic. Second, that strain is handled by that institution's own elites. Third, that the conflicts strain creates are experienced by members of that institution as normal and routine. When these three conditions are met, strains, the conflicts they create, and the elite effort to control things, 
everything stays inside the differentiated sphere. When this happens, the social system has the appearance of being in steady state. Of course, this itself is an abstracted ideal type for steady state in one part of the social system, doesn't imply steady state in others. I will illustrate this conceptual argument as it's developed so far with brief references to the three case studies that compose my project. Pedophilia in the Catholic Church had been ongoing for hundreds of years and had become more visible and significant from the 1970s when pedophilia outside the church began to be more sharply scrutinized in Western societies. Such institutional practices, however, did not create a societal-wide crisis because they did not break down the boundaries of separate spheres. Churchly culture had a way of interpreting pedophilia that promised to resolve the problem from an intra-religious point of view. The idea of the fallen nature of man, imperfections in uh, the human soul. Forgiveness and God's grace for sinners is always available via contrition and prayer. There were also functional and material elements of institutional interest. These had to do with keeping the church a going concern. The church needs priests. There is a continuing shortage in the 20th century. The church elites would hardly look with with kindness on any threat to their source of manpower. Trained by these cultural understandings and confined by these institutional pressures, the elites of the Catholic Church handled pedophilia routinely in an intra-institutional way. Because of their confessional culture and practical anxieties, church authorities responded to evidence of sexual abuse by demonstrating sympathy and concern for priests, not for their putative victims and by suggesting counseling rather than punishment. For example, Brooklyn, New York Bishop Daly, when confronted with a serial pedophile priest, is anyone getting help for Father Diaz? He is experiencing a very difficult situation. Should we be doing more for him? Such were the worries expressed about Father Diaz in private letters that circulated years before public revelations surfaced. While the behavior was widely known inside the church, Bishop Daly rarely mentioned it and never framed it as in a polluting way. Instead, the bishop commended Father Diaz for being hardworking and for, quote, ministering during the past 25 years in the best international relations and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church, end quote. He also noted Father Diaz's priestly kindnesses, pointing to attestations by parishioners, not only by religious authorities. In all these ways, the bishop judged Father Diaz to be, quote, an exemplary priest, 
ignoring what would later come to be seen as his sexual crimes. Before Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger rose to become Pope Benedict, he had been director of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which had been given authority over sexual abuse since 1922. Not once in his two decades of office, however, did Cardinal Ratzinger investigate sexual abuse or exercise his power to prevent it. Or, for example, consider strains in the financial system. Inside the financial institutions of market societies, there is continuous misrepresentation, extreme and irrational risk-taking, bankruptcy, malfeasance, corruption, and a persistent endemic refusal to take systemic responsibility for economic calamity at either individual or institutional levels. Since the 1970s, the relationship between such market activities and the civil sphere and state began shifting towards increasing autonomy for markets. There began a new phase of privatization, getting the state out of markets, sometimes called neoliberalism. One conspicuous result was the commercialization of banks, which led to the financialization of mortgage markets. This led, in turn, to the creation of derivatives, such as credit default swaps and subprime mortgages. And these led, in turn, to very high leveraging among debtors with great risks of instability among creditors. For the purposes of the theoretical argument I'm making here, what's important to recognize is simply that this had been going on for a long time. In fact, it was during the Democratic administration of Bill Clinton that the Glass-Steagall restrictions on bank speculation were repealed in the United States. As a result of this growing privatization, the instability of financial and real estate markets intensified and numerous mini-scandals erupted, but with very few exceptions, like Enron. These strains remained almost entirely intra- industry. These deviant practices, quote-unquote, were highlighted only in financial media or in the financial pages of mainstream newspapers, but never on their front pages and rarely even in their first sections. Even with the economy going into recession in 2007 in the U.S., no serious sense of societal-wide crisis emerged and no repair efforts were made. Or take phone hacking in the UK. Buying stories, bribing sources, intruding abusively and often illegally into private lives, weaving from such practices fiction instead of news, these have long been the routine practices of British tabloid newspapers. The most contemporary version of such practices is phone hacking, the invisible eavesdropping on cell phones and answering devices. This new practice was not only widely known, was not only long practiced, this practice, these practices were not only, uh, had not only existed for a long time, but were widely known and reported upon. 
Since 2005, The Guardian had been revealing that all sorts of phone hacking was going on at Rupert Murdoch's News of the World and possibly elsewhere as well. These reports were ignored. Nothing close to scandal erupted. Why? Because for most observers, it seemed routine, not deviant. They were simply the everyday practices of Fleet Street. The Guardian accounts were regarded as expressions of Broad Street jealousy of tabloids' large circulation, of left-wing politicization vis-à-vis Murdoch's power on the right. As the price of British press freedom, a ruthless, sometimes silly game, but the only one in town. The theory I'm developing here contrasts societalization with the kind of steady-state continuation of separate spheres that I've just described for the three empirical cases. I want to argue that societalization transforms routinely accepted cultural logics and institutional practices into things that seem downright evil and symbolically profane. A practice that once aroused little interest outside a particular institution and appeared normal to most of those inside now appears threatening to society itself as abnormal, as pathological, morally polluted, and institutionally disruptive, as what Mary Douglas so felicitously termed matter out of place. Of course, societalization appears to be triggered by actual events and by real information. The newly offending behavior is typically reported as if it were something just having occurred for the first time. Yet, while dramatic shifts in the social environment of action sometimes do occur, societalization is created, I believe, less by newly objective events, but by new interpretations, which simultaneously produce and are triggered by shifts in mass communication. Journalists and news media project new interpretations from outside the boundaries of afflicted institutions to potentially critical audiences and elites in the civil surround. It is not a matter of whether media mention a practice, but of how. What happens is what I call code switching. Rather than intra-institutional values, extra-institutional, explicitly civil sphere values are applied. Meaning, after all, is difference, and after code switching has occurred, new meanings can be made. Sharp cultural contrasts are drawn between civil and anti-civil. The once accepted routines can now be perceived as dangerously profane, and alongside this new coding into binaries, new narratives, new stories emerge. Once admired protagonists are now reviled villains, and heroes wearing white hats enter the social stage. The signifying language of societalization is what I have called in my earlier work the binary discourse of society. Once this discourse is triggered, 
there's a switch from the language of institutional parts to the language of social whole. What was acceptable inside a sphere now seems outrageous when evaluated from the perspective of the civil sphere. Questions like these are now put on the public table. How could they have acted in this way? Covered up pedophilia, continence derivative swaps, ordered phone hacking. What were they thinking? But of course, answers to these questions had long existed during the time of study state. The practices had been known and tolerated intra-institutionally. They were quite all right, in fact, from the perspective of those inside the institutions. When mass media interpret intra-institutional strains as violations of the principles of the civil sphere, and a wide swath of the citizen audience agrees with that interpretation, ordinary occurrences are converted into events. A kind of civil trauma is created, and once routine practices are redefined and experienced as trauma-creating events, and victims and perpetrators are named and shamed. This new status of eventfulness announces the breakdown of steady state. Routine symbolic evaluations give way to fear and alarm. There's a broad sense of crisis as growing outrage arouses that hoary but sturdy old thing called the conscience of society. There are parliamentary hearings, special commissions, and probing investigative journalism, and deeply serious, morally engaged discussions everywhere. There are confessions, experiences of repentance, expressions of repentance, and the arc of a cultural learning process becomes projected against the social sky. This is the moral dimension of civil repair. There's a more institutional dimension as well. Harsh regulatory interventions often follow upon code switching. The reason is that the civil sphere's communicative and regulatory institutions are thoroughly intertwined. In a democratic society, the legal and parliamentary arms of the state must be seen as publicly responsive to polluting threats or to what are interpreted as polluting threats to the sacred principles of the civil sphere. Again, let me illustrate this second phase of my theoretical argument with my three empirical cases. In the U.S., social attention to church pedophilia begins only in 2002 with stories in the Boston Globe and the New York Times. With the publication of these large case headline stories on page one, there is a code switch. The signifying language shifts from the intra-institutional culture of Catholicism to the extra-religious language of civil sphere. Practices once barely noticed now suddenly preoccupy American society. Crucially, the language of these reports was not religious, but civil. It evoked basic civil institutions, such as office, 
and drew upon the sacred and profane dichotomies of the discourse of civil society to make emotionally weighted moral contrasts of openness versus secrecy, honesty, dishonesty, altruism, egoism, autonomy, domination, outspoken versus hushed up. These are the moral dichotomies that animate the civil sphere. The New York Times described, quote, the reactions of Roman Catholic church leaders as shocking. The concern was not framed by the abuse by individual priests. It wasn't a matter of what they did, but rather as an abuse of office by those in authority. Church officials above priests failed to exercise the kind of authority that regulates hierarchies of power mediating between the interests of particular institutions and the broader morality of the civil sphere. That was what happened in their view. Rather than exercising such authority, what happened in the words of the tabloid USA Today was, quote, a cover-up at the highest level. Rather than looking out for others, those in church power were said to have, quote, cared more for their own image than ministering to hundreds of victims. In other words, selfishness. As a result, they had, quote, hushed up the transgressions of those with status or power, reassigning guilty priests to other parishes rather than punishing them. News stories describe church officials as, quote, covering up scandal and threatening those who want to speak out. Typical anti-democratic corruption of democratic social obligations had nothing to do with what they had did, per se, and nothing to do with religion. It was translated into a, a, a violation of the principles and practices of the civil sphere. With such code switching having its sway, the regulatory institutions of the civil sphere were not far behind. Soon enough, the coercive arm of the state reached into the heart of the church. Grand juries assembled. Hundreds of legal indictments against church officials were made. Hundreds, thousands of lawsuits filed for damages. Dioceses had to close churches and borrow money to pay court judgments. For the financial and phone hacking crisis, the sequence was similar as far as it goes. Societalization was triggered by code switching. From routine behavior inside institutions, the same activities were now framed by and responded to the terms of civil sphere. There was a growing sense of moral outrage, an experience of societal crisis, and subsequently, regulatory intervention from police, from parliament, and courts. The September 14, 2008 crash of Lehman Brothers investment firm was the occurrence that triggered code switching in the financial sphere. Suddenly, the signifying language shot upward. It became transcendentalized moving from economic considerations of rationality and irresponsibility to an almost religious language of the civil and anti-civil sublime. By September 15th, 
The very next day, the New York Times was reporting, quote, fear of a precipitous decline, describing the economic events as, quote, most extraordinary. The paper claimed they marked the end of an era. Quote, American capitalism is going through something historic and not in a good way. The Times ominously warned about the imminence of, quote, Judgment Day, announcing that Washington almost had the feel of wartime. In his first official address to Congress, President Barack Obama announced that, quote, the day of reckoning has arrived. There were public confessions of malfeasance, journalistic exposés, everything once considered clever and economically routine was now declared deviant and condemned. To invert the famous phrase of the Communist Manifesto, all that was profane now became holy. Taking advantage of one's fellow citizens, greed, deceit, hedonism, elitism, how could you, how could that be? Police raids, grand juries, dozens and dozens of arrests and imprisonments of leading financial figures followed. In other words, regulatory intervention followed the code switch I've described. Congressional hearings over two years and new laws and a giant, a several giant commissions. The Dodd-Frank uh, law clocked in at 10,000 pages of new and detailed civil regulation of financial marketing. Phone hacking. What triggered the societalization of phone hacking in the UK is revealing of the lack of any intrinsic connection between the existence of social strain and the eruption of societalization. As I mentioned earlier, the Guardian, the Guardian had been reporting for five years on phone hacking with basically no results. Then, on, October, on July 4, 2001, a bombshell story transformed hacking from intrasphere routine into what seemingly was a matter of the civil sphere, a matter of societal crisis. On the Guardian's front page, Blow a color photo of a smiling and pretty red-haired teenage girl. The account declared, quote, the news of the world illegally targeted the missing schoolgirl Millie Dowler and her family in March 2002, interfering with police inquiries into her disappearance. <clears throat> Millie Dowler's disappearance 10 years earlier of course, had been widely represented as a deeply disturbing low point for British civil society. The heart-wrenching story of innocence destroyed by foul play, saturating tabloid and broadsheet alike. The collective memory remained vivid, and Dower's murderer had been convicted only 10 days before this July 2011 Guardian story made the connection between her and phone hacking. What the newspaper revealed was that Millie Dollar had, in effect, not only been murdered, but hacked. The polluting news narrative prominently featured accusations of heinous and despicable, for example, by the Dollar's lawyer, who characterized the hacking inimitably as, quote, distress heaped upon tragedy. 
and declared that news of the world had no humanity. These statements summed up the code switch pretty well. The Guardian construction echoed like a thunderclap through communicative institutions in the British civil sphere, careening back and forth among blogs, radio, TV, and print. Far from being routine, phone hacking was now connected to the heart of the anti-civil profane. This news about phone hacking was broadly characterized as, quote, revelation, something closer to religious insight into evil than mere information. A newly uncovered sacred truth long hidden by malevolent powers, this revelation, in the words of the Wall Street Journal, quote, turned a long simmering problem into an explosive scandal. What had been normal and a joke, if a bitter one, now became symbolically converted into a practice that seemed threatening to the UK civil society and British democracy itself. Suddenly, the all-powerful Rupert Murdoch was on the run. He shut down News of the World, appeared before parliamentary hearings, and issued abject apologies. Quote, this is the most humble day of my career. To say I'm sorry is not enough. When describing how he felt on hearing the allegations about the Millie Dollar case, he exclaimed, at no point do I remember being as sickened as when I heard what the Dollar family had to endure. Nor do I recall being as angry as when I was told that the news of the world could have compounded their distress. This semiotic code switching generated inside the communicative institutions of the British civil sphere soon produced reverberations in its regulatory institutions as well. Just seven days after the dollar revelation, on July 13, 2011, Prime Minister Cameron appointed Lord Justice Brian Levinson as chairman of a special inquiry with the British state's power to summon witnesses and require them to testify in public and under oath. Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, the coalition, coalition's liberal party leader, evoking purity and danger, linked Levison's appointment to civil purification. It was, he said, quote, a once-in-a-generation chance to clean up the murky underworld of the corrupted relation between police, politics, and press. Four months later, when Lord Levison opened the inquiry on November 14, he represented his duty in terms of the idealizing aspirations of the civil sphere, stressing the relationship between critical communication, media self-regulation, and social solidarity. Quote, the press provides an essential check on all aspects of public life. That is why any failure within the media affects all of us. At the heart of this inquiry, therefore, may be one simple question, who guards the guardians? Later that same day, the inquiry's chief counsel offered a sobering response suggesting that in the case of media phone hacking, nobody was guarding the guardians at all. In preparing for the hearings, he announced the, quote, independent assessors had discovered wide-ranging illegal acts. Among the 11,000 pages of, from notebooks of a single former News of the World reporter, 
2,266 hacking investigations were recorded, incidents initiated by 28 different reporters and editors that involved almost 6,000 victims. In the months that followed, the Levison inquiries, televised hearings, provided an immense public stage on which the drama of civil pollution and purification was performed. The nine months of public testimony by 337 witnesses had projected immense cultural power, demonstrating the bindingness of civil norms via illocutionary speech action, that is, by the very dramatic performance of them. To be fundamental, however, civil repair must also be perlocutionary to continue in John Austin's manner. The civil sphere needs also, in other words, to intrude into the non-civil sphere through sanction and organization, not only communicatively, but regulatively. And the jury is still very much out on whether the societalization of the phone hacking scandal will succeed in doing that. There has been police action with some hundred arrests of journalist editors and of police themselves, many of which did go to trial, but some of the most culpable figures who were most guilty of violating civil obligations of office, for example, News of the World editor Rebecca Brooks, were not convicted. The Levison Inquiry also produced policy recommendations for organizational change, detailed in its four-volume, 2,000-page final report. Foremost among these was the recommendation for a newly independent regulatory system for the press. It generated, however, immense controversy, and two and a half years later is far from being implemented. This stall process of institutional repair points to how much more there is to say about societalization than I've been able to cover here. My goal has been to conceptualize a new kind of social process, to model a new understanding of the relation between spheres in modern societies. The intra-institutional handling of strain defines a steady state, I've argued, that can be interrupted by the intervention of the civil sphere. Activities that once seemed routine now appear polluted and demands for institutional reforms are made. The triggering mechanism is a semiotic switch from the discourse of non-civil to civil sphere. And it may have real institutional effects, but, and this is what will take up the next few minutes of the conclusion, but there are limit conditions on societalization, and in this, these concluding pages, I want to outline how I would conceptualize these limit conditions. The first concerns backlash. Societalization isn't a ritual process in Durkheim's or Victor Turner's sense, much less a matter of functional reciprocity or interpenetration in Parsons' sense. In response to the new cultural judgments that societalization produces, and to real and threatened regulatory interventions, pushbacks emerge. As they are thrown on the defensive, targeted institutions and the elites 
and their elites attack the newly inclusive civil sphere and its representatives. Intersphere boundaries, where to draw the lines between spheres, then become objects of intense, bitter struggle. For example, take the church. Even as new civil regulation and new intra-religious regulatory institutions emerged, the church engaged in a decade-long fight against the very right of the civil sphere to intervene. Because statutes of limitations often prevented priestly pedophiles from being prosecuted, civil authorities and state legislatures and courts moved to roll the statutes back. The Catholic Church battled these efforts state by state, spending a billion dollars in suits against them. It also pushed back physically by removing violators from the U.S., placing them in sovereignties without extradition treaties. Take the financial system and, and, and backlash. After being thrown on their heels, economic elites began to push back. They claimed that while errors of judgment had been made, nothing systemic was out of whack. They warned that new regulations would create socialism, that they would neutralize moral risk, and undermine the competitive value system upon which capitalist economic competence is believed to be based. And as Dodd-Frank legislation moved from congressional passage to state implementation, lawyers and, uh, and lobbyists representing banks and investment firms entered into the nerves and sinews of the administration process of the civil sphere, fighting to modify, if not undermine, uh, its traction. Or consider phone hacking. Even as Murdoch apologized and closed News of the World, firing every one of its hundreds of employees, he and other publishers and editors warned against restricting freedom of the press. And many political figures joined this pushback. Only a handful of politicians and publishers supported Levinson's proposal for independent regulation. Civil society organizations like Hacked Off continue to mobilize, claiming that polls indicate support among the British public. Regulatory intervention, however, seems less than likely, especially after the recent election. This first limiting condition backlash complicates the model I presented in a significant way. When societalization is triggered, significant civil repairs are made, certainly to the moral fabric of society and often to its organizational structures. But, and this is a big but, eventually there will be a return to the steady state of intra-institutional self-regulation. Stand off is as much as problem-solving creates the pathway leading back to steady state. In fact, there is cyclical alternation between societalization and steady state. A particular strain can be addressed, but the tension of intersphere boundaries, the contradictions, if you will, that are in the very nature of a functionally differentiated system is permanent. It can never be resolved. Societalization 
is a systemic possibility, but it's not a systemic solution. No matter what reforms are made institutionally, and no matter how much cultural learning there is, new crises along the same intersphere boundaries will always arise. In other words, crisis is endemic to the ecology of separated spheres in modern democratic life. The second and third limiting conditions have to do not with the pushback against societalization, which eventually initiates a return to steady state, but with whether societalization can ever be triggered at all. Often the watchdog of the civil sphere doesn't bark. Investigative stories are not written, or when they are, they don't fuse with the citizen audience in such a manner that they create widespread civil indignation. They don't, in other words, seem like revelations. The strains I've examined here today, of course, eventually did produce some kind of societalization. However, we can all think of very significant strains that have not produced societalization when it appeared that a code switch to the evaluative criteria of a civil sphere might never be made. For example, sexual harassment and violence against women by men inside modern institutional arenas, families, schools, and workplaces went on for centuries of modern society. It was not considered worth mentioning. Or, if it were mentioned, the issues and parties were handled intra-institutionally by the patriarchal powers that be. Only in the last 50 years have such abuses begun to generate code switching and societalization. Or consider racial harassment and police violence against minorities. After the end of the American Civil War, it took 75 years until the middle of the New Deal for lynching to become societalized in the United States. And random and systemic police murder of black men has continued, as everybody now realizes, up until today. Though code switching has recently begun vis-a-vis these anti-civil depredations, the American civil sphere remains so deeply polarized that the necessary civil repairs might well not be made. Think of the murder of Stephen Lawrence in your society. These are examples of what might be called blocked or stalled societalization. They point to two different, if related, limiting conditions, which I'll talk briefly about and then come to a close. The first of these is marginalization. Societalization is blocked to the degree that those subject to social strain and dysfunction are subaltern or subordinated groups. When stigmatized populations are hived off into segregated communities, the strains they're subjected to and the ways they've developed for addressing them are either invisible to or simply ignored by the communicative and regulatory institutions of the dominant civil sphere. For example, manual workers in early industrial capitalism, Jews in European Christian societies, South African blacks under apartheid, African Americans in ghettos, colonized peoples in imperial regimes, women in patriarchal societies. 
The strengths and impositions to which such marginalized groups are subject are very unlikely to be reported in mainstream social media. And even when such reports do appear, there is little possibility that they will generate code switching. The reason? There's little sense of shared humanity from center to periphery. Core groups imagine peripheral subaltern persons as being less than fully human, in many cases, indeed, as being inherently anti-civil. They feel the need to withdraw from such people in order to protect themselves from being polluted, not to societalize and reach out to them. Faced with such blockages to societalization, other responses do arise, other pathways towards amelioration. For example, social movements can emerge. Some moderate, others revolutionary, which can project felicitous performances of injustice. Intellectuals can make scathing critiques, and social scientists can launch investigations. White papers can be published, and religious germides can be made. And this has been true for all the subaltern groups I've mentioned. These social and cultural reactions to blockage appeal to an idealized civil sphere free from the destructive compromises that create marginalizations in real civil societies. And they gain traction, or to the degree they gain traction, they affect the asymmetrical background representations uh, which rationalize these institutional, intra-institutional strains. Indignant counter-hegemonic narratives emerge from the, about the abusive domination of subaltern groups. And these are deposited incrementally in the collective consciousness. There is an accretion of melodramatic and tragic stories about sexual abuse, pedophilia, financial corruption, reckless, ruthless journalism, alongside romantic and heroic narratives about how courageous individuals, groups, and institutions have sometimes been able to resist. These new, such new background representations are necessary, if not sufficient, conditions for the processes of societalization I've described here. The last um, limiting condition I'll mention is polarization. If societies are too divided against themselves, such growing recognition of anti-civil abuse isn't enough. It becomes refracted in a manner that fails to engage broad and, quote, common concern. The paradoxical result is that societalization can actually intensify division rather than expand solidarity. And such deepened divisions can eventually lead to the destruction of the civil sphere rather than to its repair. Since time is running out, I'll just offer two short illustrations. Consider slavery in antebellum America. Abolitionist movements created an increasing sensitivity to slavery and eventually massive indignation what I call societalization. But the outrage was experienced primarily among northern whites and not experienced or recognized in the South. Over time, those who promoted societalization and those who blocked it 
came to see one another as irredeemably anti-civil, as enemies who had to be physically destroyed for the civil sphere as they saw it to be preserved. So you had societalization leading, in that case, to civil war. Another example would be the societalizing movements vis-a-vis anti-Semitism in 19th and early 20th century Europe, which produced civil repairs that incorporated Jews and provided them with political and cultural citizenship. But these societalizing movements created extraordinary blowback with deepening chasms opening up between cosmopolitan and primordial cultural and political groups. In France, the Dreyfus Affair uh, deeply polarized an already divided society, setting the stage for the upsurge of neo-Nazi movements and for Vichy 40 years later. In early 20th century German society, Jews seemed to be even more rapidly incorporated than in France, but here too, deep social fragmentation meant that the societalization of anti-Semitism ended up producing more aggressive anti-Semitism in turn, and the German civil sphere, along with its Jews, was eventually destroyed. Let me conclude. Societalization is peculiar to the present age. Communal shaming has always been with us, as Durkheim and others have made perfectly clear, but the mass character of contemporary shaming is different in content and scale. It involves hundreds and sometimes thousands of allegations, months of trials, reams of transcripts, hundreds of victims. Such machinations require enormous infrastructures. The industrial scale of mass shaming provides for some sense of a communal, even global village in an age when our sense of social belonging seems increasingly attenuated, problematic, fractured, and alienated. There are significant consequences for states that possess civil spheres that can foster and forbear such explosive ritual-like processes, and for those states which do not and cannot. Thank you.